1995 Source Awards are pivotal in pop culture music history. Going back to watch it for my own research brought me back to why the Super Bowl halftime show is such a huge deal in 2022. From 1993 to 1997, gangster rap went mainstream. 59 million records were sold, record labels were started, and record labels were ended. And many lost their lives or were seriously harmed in the process. But one thing that is undeniable is the amazing music between the two biggest record labels of the time, Death Row and Bad Boy. We enjoyed radio hits that included Let Me Ride, Nothing But a G Thing, Gin and Juice, Doggy Dog World, Natural Born Killers, Murder Was the Case, California Love, How Do You Want It, I Ain't Mad At You, Big Papa, Flavor in Your Ear, Get Down, Ain't Nobody, Hypnotize, More Money, More Problems, Can't Nobody Hold Me Down, I'll Be Missing You, and It's All About the Benjamins. That's an incredible amount of music in just four years. Yeah, you heard that right. That's only four years. But it wasn't always fun, and more often than not, it was terrifying. Welcome to 21 Years. I'm your host, El Dangeroso, and in this episode, how the 1995 Source Awards mark the end of gangster rap. You know, guys, it's not always easy coming up with ideas for this show, mainly because there's so much I want to do, but need to find creative ways to do them. I try my best to find some little nugget of something related to a larger event in the 80s or 90s and try to zoom in on that and make that odd piece of information tell us a story. From there, I end up telling you a complete story. The reason I do this is because I have zero desire to sit here and read Wikipedia out loud to you while recording it. I also try to keep things very quick and simple, much like my sex life. See, I know how these things go because I have in my time been a listener to a various podcasts that go on entirely too long, and after about an hour in, I'm on Wikipedia in 15 minutes, reading what would have had another 90 minutes of listening. I do this for both of us. It's nice to come in with a prepared topic and find ways to strike quickly at relevant information to turn out a fun product you can listen to on your way to work. By the time you pull in to face all of the Weenus reports, I'm wrapping up something that I hope brought you some fond memories from your past. Often these are tough topics to figure out because I try to be unique. Oftentimes I pick from an ever-growing list of topics I keep up with to bring to you one day. Some sounded great at the beginning but got crumbled and thrown into the trash as quote-unquote not fun enough. I actually have done that lately. I don't toss the topics forever, but I gotta brainstorm sometimes a better way to do them. Here's an example. I really, really want to do the two Corys. I mean, really want to do them. I mean, a story. They were a huge part of my life, but I don't want to read you their biographies. There's no point in that. That's not what I do. I did start to write the two Corys episode, but after weeks of slaving away writing, I realized their lives were actually pretty depressing and sad. It made me sad realizing how much joy they brought to us as preteens, only to struggle with their adult lives. I love Feldman, but we gotta be honest, Feldman becoming a musician has been cringeworthy, and we lost Haim many years ago after decades of struggling with drugs and financial ruin. No, they deserve better, and so it went into the not fun enough can, and I gotta rethink my approach on it. That all brings me to today's episode. Rarely does a topic fall in my lap. 
But with the Super Bowl coming, it almost seems like this episode is screaming to be born. I don't really care too much for halftime shows. My wife does love them. I mean, she really, really does love them. It's the only real part of the Super Bowl she pays absolute attention to. I don't care for it because outside of Prince, U2, and the four minutes Missy Elliott crashed Katy Perry's halftime show, I really have watched one that I really liked. I mean, sure, there have been some great performances, but nothing before or since as compared to Prince in the Rain for Super Bowl 41. Now, in 2022, Generation X is going out of its mind for the halftime show for Super Bowl 56, which all reminds me how much I absolutely despise Roman numerals. I mean, we're still using those. Really? The Super Bowl includes Mary J. Blige, Eminem, Kendrick Lamar, Dr. Dre, and Snoop Dogg. I can honestly say the musical style of rap took a huge step forward in the 90s, becoming a more mainstream style in a ferocious way. Radio stations became dedicated to playing rap on consistent rotation. In my hometown, radio stations came out of the woodwork to be rotational rap stations. Middle-class kids who were listening to the Beastie Boys were now graduating to Tribe Called Quest, Black Sheep, Tupac. And once rap hit MTV and these songs were being played on the grind or in TV Beach House, it was over. Everyone wanted to be in the rap game. And much like the explosion of new metal in the end of the 90s and early 2000s, rap was the best new thing around. Nothing makes people in the field richer than when white middle-class teens with disposable income buy your CD. But it went from being the new game that everyone wanted to play to being such a dangerous game that no one wanted to come near. Things got serious and fast. Sadly, when money is rolling in, the wolves come out, and pretty soon the artists people were using as soundtracks to their parties were dead, and things had gotten way too serious. While everyone else is celebrating this halftime show, I'm thinking, well, this is a topic I want to do. It's part of how I think, I guess. Seeing a legendary artist in the commercial for the halftime show made me think back to a time when their art was dangerous and imitating their life. So here it is, an episode perfect for the halftime show. A wild ride. It's all about the 1995 Source Awards and how it basically started the decline of gangster rap. To tell this story, we have to start the 1995 Source Awards because out of the entire timeline, this is where everything gets elevated to another level. There's no need to really get into the beginnings of Death Row, more than likely you already know it. But to be fair, here's a fast recap. Dr. Dre was in NWA, a rap group which was a major, major player in gangster rap and reflected the street life in California at the time. Easy e was another member who brought in a manager by the name of Jerry Heller, who basically picked Easy e to be his protege, and in doing so, taught Easy e how to steal money from the band through creating his own record label called Ruthless Records. In a nutshell, everyone eventually found out that he was stealing and basically walked out on Heller and Easy e But Easy still had Dr. Dre on contract. Dr. Dre wants out. He meets a very serious guy that serious people tell you to take very seriously, and his name is Suge Knight. And he, well, takes a few baseball bats to Ruthless Records and convinces Eazy-E to release Dr. Dre's contract without penalty, thus allowing Dr. Dre and Suge Knight to be partners in a new label that they wanted to call Death Row. The reason why Suge Knight felt it was so important to get Dr. Dre out from Ruthless Records was because Dr. Dre was, and is, one of the greatest rap producers of all time. 
something that was going to be very, very important to Death Row's success going forward. From 1992 to 1994, Death Row had changed the game in music. If there is one theme you hear from me over and over in these episodes, it's that a few things have to align for pop culture stardom. Timing, opportunity, appeal. These things will always dominate the trends of pop culture. Like everything else that hits at a wild peak, all things must line up for the big blast off. And music in 1989 was at a crossroads, and several things were happening to boost a new style of mainstream audience. Now, what I'm about to say here may make you very upset if you still own a Camaro and uh, still business in the front, party in the back, if you know what I mean. But the 80s were ending, and the Def Leppard's warrants and poisons that dominated video space on the MTV network had gotten pretty stale. The whole glam metal thing was dead. No one wanted cheesy feel-good party rock with cheesy videos anymore. Glam metal went as far as it could go, and the youth were looking for something more urban, more dangerous, and more real. As we have discussed prior, black hip-hop culture was beginning to become mainstream in America, and a lot of that was on the back of Arsenio Hall, whose nighttime talk show was starting to really take off. By the way, check out that Arsenio Hall show in the archives. You'll love it. And in 1989, he was booking urban artists regularly. Yo! MTV Raps debuts in 1989 as well, finally breaking down the wall and opening the gates for hip-hop and rap to get regular video rotation. I want to pause here, though, and I really want to emphasize how much Arsenio Hall did for the urban culture. I don't think he gets enough credit for bringing so many subcultures to the mainstream. The first time I saw N.W.A., honestly, was on Arsenio. They did the song 100 Miles and Running, and I thought it was pretty incredible. One of the biggest things to remember as well is how much alternative rock embraced rap and hip-hop. Tours like Lollapalooza included Ice-T, Ice Cube, Cypress Hill, Tribe Called Quest, alongside alternative rock acts like Alice in Chains, Jane's Addiction, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Finally, rap had come mainstream and middle-class America was eating it up. Now, rap artists were getting their time on main stages in front of crowds who drove the economics of popularity. Middle-class white kids. They were going to school with Dr. Dre and Snoop blasting on their car speakers. The alternative rock world opened its arms to 90s rap, and that was a driving force that literally everyone misses on when discussing the 90s rap explosion, but it played such a pivotal role. By the 1990s, rap and hip-hop was the most dominating genre in music. Rap artists were outselling virtually everyone, and the biggest player in the game was Death Row Records. I can assure you this episode is not about investigating who killed Biggie Smalls or Tupac. There are a ton of podcasts on that topic, and honestly we'll include who basically admitted to doing these things at the end. But yes, we got to touch on it. It's important to the episode. But right now, we can't ignore the juggernaut Death Row had become so quickly. As we mentioned earlier, to keep things quick and simple, Suge Knight, Dr. Drace, and Snoop Dogg would be the main drivers of the music in Death Row from 92 till about 96. Later, they'd be joined by megastar Tupac, who brought everything to another level. Surprisingly, for all the dominance of Death Row, for four years, they only really released six actual artist albums. The Chronic by Dr. Dre, Doggy Style by Snoop Dogg, Dog Food by The Dog Pound, All Eyes on Me by Tupac, Seven Day Theory by Tupac, and The Dog Father by Snoop. 
But let's not forget that Death Row was also very involved with soundtracks and compilations and whatnot. So they were keeping busy on the production side with Dr. Dre, but they just weren't releasing a lot of artist albums. But let's not fool ourselves. Those albums sold tens of millions of copies. I mean, it's incredible. And although they only really had six artist albums, the label itself had signed 50 artists. The 1995 Source Awards was such a pivotal moment because it's the first time everyone was able to see shots fired by the East Coast and the West Coast labels, Bad Boy and Death Row. To add to the tension, the Source Awards are being held in New York, which is, if you have a map on you, unfold it and take a look, it's uh, on the East Coast. And while it's the East Coast, it's hard to deny that after all Death Row did to break rap mainstream, there wasn't a label who took more advantage of it than Sean Combs and Bad Boy. See, as we're going on about how great Death Row was and all the wonderful things that they did for rap, you gotta understand that the result of that impact was record labels who followed blindly to what was popular. Trends and imitation are what record companies strived on. Death Row was huge, so now labels wanted West Coast gangster rappers on their label to replicate Death Row's success. This is unfortunately very, very common with the recording industry back in those days. Trends change, and once one thing works, the other labels are saturating the market with copies. The effect of this was actually shutting East Coast artists out of record deals. If you were hip-hop and from the East, record labels had nothing to do with you. You simply weren't gangster enough for them. And so, in 1994, a label was created by a talent manager at Uptown Records by the name of Sean Combs who saw the issues the label trends were creating. Where those that existed, opportunities showed through it, and Sean Combs created a label called Bad Boy Records. Bad Boy signed a younger rapper named Christopher Wallace, famously known as Biggie Smalls. Smalls became the label's early breadwinner, giving Bad Boy incredible returns on investment. As Combs' ability to spot talent became its bright light, Combs was signing up all the East Coast talent he could. Death Row might have hit the jackpot on the West Coast and created a marketplace for that, but it also created a vacuum for Bad Boy to thrive in, and the attention the East Coast label was getting so quickly was hard to ignore. It didn't take long for a few things to happen from Bad Boy quickly rising up the ladder to make Suge Knight very angry. As the owner of Death Row, he was used to running things in the rap world. Bad Boy presented a challenge for Death Row, and thus quickly labeled, they would be the enemy. Suge only does one thing, and when he senses a challenge, he hits first and he hits hard. So by 1995, all this heated over at the Source Awards. But first, let me back up and explain why the Source Awards being in New York was a problem. Over the last couple of months before the Source Awards, Death Row was making it very apparent that they saw California as a place for supreme talent and production, and the East Coast was a place for wannabes. There was much made about the East Side being the minor leagues and that Combs was a cartoon or Smalls was a punk. Death Row just went either way to bash East Coast and specifically New York at any opportunity. And the Source Awards being in New York was likely going to be a problem when Death Row showed up. But it wasn't a problem for a while, at least not until Suge made his famous speech. Second of all, I'd like to thank my whole entire Defo family on both sides, you know what I'm saying? 
like to tell Tupac to keep his guards up. We ride with him. And one other thing I'd like to say, any artist out there want to be an artist and want to stay a star and don't want to have to worry about the executive producer trying to be all in the videos, all on the record, dancing, come to death row. Yeah, he really did. He said that. Believe it or not, many wars are started with a gunshot that later no one admitted to shooting. In almost every case in history, both sides claim the other pulled the trigger and began to fire as a reaction. I think this war starts a little bit the same way. Suge Knight and Death Row will claim Bad Boy and Combs rode their coattails and weren't innovators. Combs and Bad Boy would say Death Row put a monopoly on the rap industry and locked talented artists from the East from getting deals. I say everything was probably intense enough until the shot was heard around the world. The first real shot. The evening was tense already based on a few primary things that had already happened in the moment. For one, you had West Coast label with a lot of pride and being from the West Coast, but also very violent, sitting next to an East Coast label with a huge upstart, a lot of pride, riding a rocket ship on a path created for them. Secondly, you have the West Coast death row family coming to a place where they made every attempt at discrediting. In an East Coast city with an East Coast rap label, it wasn't going to go over real well what Suge Knight said. And I mean, if you've watched some of maybe Biggie Smalls videos, you kind of get what he's saying. I mean, Sean Combs was really getting into all of those videos as much as he could. But it wasn't going to go over well, and it was going to be met with hostile boos and pushback. Things only intensified more when Death Row's co-owner, Dr. Dre, won Producer of the Year. He was accompanied by Snoop Dogg. On stage, the boos angered and hurt Snoop Dogg, who made the statement, quote, the East Coast ain't got no love for Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. The East Coast ain't got no love for Dr. Dre or Snoop Dogg or Death Row. Y'all don't love us? Y'all don't love us. Well, let it be known then. The scream of boos only increased to louder and louder proportions. The speech did nothing to help the situation, only to make it worse. By that time, it was Combs' turn to present an award, and everyone sat waiting for his own statement. In a classy way... Combs said, I'm the executive producer a comment was made about a little earlier. But check this out. Contrary to what other people may feel, I would like to say that I'm very proud of Dr. Dre, of Death Row, and Suge Knight for their accomplishments. And all this East Coast, West Coast, that needs to stop. Sadly, Combs was hardly innocent himself. Everybody knew that he compared himself and Bad Boy to Suge Knight and Death Row. And at the start of Bad Boy's performance that night, he even said out loud, Quote, I live in the East, and I'm going to die in the East. That wasn't by accident. I definitely think Bad Boy, Sean Combs, and Biggie Smalls took their shots at death row through lyrics and statements, but they were very, very good at mastering PR and playing the good guys who were innocent. In truth, if death row showed anything to other rap labels, it's that even bad attention equals record sales. And I do think, though, Smalls and Combs played a very, very me game in the media, at the end of the day, the rivalry was good for business. The problem was, the 1995 Source Awards were only the starting point to an engagement that was to come. Blood was not on anyone's hands quite yet, but that would soon change. If the 1995 Source Awards are our starting point in this story, the next 18 months is where things get really, really serious. 
In my opinion, everything had boiled up to a point where Suge Knight was looking for someone he could use as a weapon towards Bad Boy, and he found it in Tupac Shakur. What many people don't realize is Tupac going to death row is not possible without a man you see often on American Idol by the name of Jimmy Levine. Levine ran Interscope Records, a parent company to death row, the same Interscope who had a rap artist on contract that was absolutely single-handedly making a name for himself in the music world. Tupac had increased his sales with each album he released. His popularity and charisma was undeniable. The problem was Tupac, for all his talent and good looks, was trouble for the label. And after he was a victim of a robbery in which he was shot five times, he was then hauled off to jail where he had been sitting since being released from the hospital. But what Suge Knight did know is that Tupac blamed one-time friend Smalls Combs, and others with the Bad Boy label of either setting him up to be robbed and shot or knowing who robbed and shot him. As Tupac sat in jail, his mind raced. After a visit from Suge, Tupac confided in Suge of his suspicions that Small and Combs set him up to be killed. But he had more problems at the moment. Tupac's mother was about to lose her house being behind on the mortgage and that Interscope had been eerily quiet about bailing Tupac out of prison. Of course, this was music to Suge's ears, and he began to plot a way to get his secret weapon armed and ready. Suge talked to Interscope President Levine, who told Suge that he would love to not only loan Tupac money to help his mom, but to also bail him out. But his hands were tied. As it turns out, Interscope was about to be bought by Time Warner. At the time, Warner was buying up a ton of entertainment real estate, including TBS in Atlanta. But one thing Time Warner was not down with was any type of controversy. So bailing out a rap star with a violent accusation of rape wasn't going to be the thing Interscope was going to shed light on during a tire-kicking process. However, Levine and Suge made an agreement that Suge could bail out Tupac. It would actually be doing Interscope a favor to sign Tupac under a death row contract. And so shortly afterwards, Suge took care of Tupac, signed him to the deal, and set him loose on the rap world with the second largest rap label to back him. Wait, record scratch. Second? Yes, by the end of 1996, Bad Boy had multiple artists signed releasing multiple albums from 93 to 96 and sold millions. The biggest, of course, being Biggie Smalls. None of this set right with Suge and Tupac, and they wanted to destroy Bad Boy, Combs, and Smalls. But the rest of the fraction were feeling a lot differently. But before we get into that, let's take a look at the following 18 months after the 1995 Source Awards. There were videos made by Death Row depicting their artists literally the size of Godzilla, destroying New York City landscapes. East Coast artists released a video in which they take a captive look-alike artist from Death Row, gagging him, tying him up, throwing him in a trunk, and then dumping his body over a bridge. Tupac is bailed out by Suge Knight and signed to Death Row. Tupac immediately releases tracks that take shots at Biggie Smalls, Bad Boy, and Combs, who he believes set him up for a robbery where he was shot five times. If I had to pinpoint a moment when things got out of control for me, it's about the time Tupac is set loose on Death Row. Being a gang member and being affiliated is not the same thing, and I don't want to make accusations of who was a member of what gang, but there was most certainly gang activity going on at Death Row. Violence was an everyday occurrence, and rumors swirled that Knight was using the Bloods' street gang as reinforcements, enforcers, and hitmen. 
As Bad Boy continued on, Combs was doing well. Bad Boy, in its first four years, released 12 albums of nine artists, with 35 million albums sold. Death Row was making money off of four artists who released six albums, soundtrack compilations, and various mixed artist recordings. But things all hit the skids when Dr. Dre finally realizes Death Row was a toxic environment and leaves Death Row in fear. This was a heavy blow for Death Row, as Dr. Dre was pretty much the credit behind Death Row. He was the best producer in rap, and the label now lost the most influential and most impactful artist in all of rap. Knight and Tupac were not at peace with this. They soon turned on Dr. Dre themselves, making comments about he was soft and how he was a sellout. Things had gotten so bad for Dr. Dre that he couldn't stay in the studio recording music to stay away from the violence anymore. Death Row had just become too dangerous, and under the free roam of the Bloods gang members, there was too much at stake for Dr. Dre, who had his own legal pressures due to being in a violent atmosphere at Death Row. Dr. Dre just simply had enough, and out the door he went, leaving his master recordings with Knight, who demanded them be part of the Death Row inventory. Dr. Dre was angry, but it was a small payment to feel safe again and make music without the pressure of drug deals in the next room, beatdowns in the hallways. And in fact, most of the artists with Death Row were terrified to be there as well, including Snoop Dogg, who felt the environment was wearing thin. Dr. Dre was so scared to stay another day, he literally signed everything over to Suge just so he could leave. He has stated his greatest relief was walking out the doors of Death Row, knowing he'd never return again. Snoop Dogg was also growing tired of the hatred and the anger. He himself had just escaped a long prison sentence in 1993 for murder that was gang-related. For the five years, Snoop would go back and forth in his mind over what to do. He was deeply unhappy with Death Row and the state of the war between the East and West Coast. In 1996, Snoop made statements that he would actually like to record with Smalls and Combs to squash all the issues which made him a traitor to Knight and Tupac, and they became relentless about shutting him out. By 1996, the war was all but over. The FBI began investigating Death Row for being a criminal enterprise. The FBI knew drugs and gangs were running rampant in Death Row's rooms, and they were determined to break the safe house that was Death Row. No charges were ever brought, but it didn't stop Suge from being arrested in 1996, causing Death Row to basically be stagnant for the next two years. The feud would really start to slow down after the death of Tupac Shakur. Tupac, on September 7, 1996, would attend a Mike Tyson boxing match with Suge Knight. After the Tyson fight, security cameras in the casino would show us that Suge Knight, some members of rival gangs, and Tupac Shakur would engage in a fist fight on the floors of the casino, which was broken up by casino security. After leaving the hotel, Suge and Tupac had decided that they would go to a club that Suge owned. As they were stopped at a stoplight at 11.15 p.m., a white four-door late-model Cadillac pulled up to Knight's right side. The shooter seated in the back of the Cadillac, rolled down the window, and rapidly fired gunshots from a, from a 40 caliber Glock 22 at Shakur's BMW. Tupac was hit four times, twice in the chest, one in the arm, once in the thigh, and one of the bullets entering into Shakur's right lung. Suge was hit in the head by bullet fragments. Despite Suge's injuries and the vehicle having a flat tire, he was able to drive Tupac and himself a mile from the site to Las Vegas Boulevard, 
They were again pulled over by police who alerted paramedics through radio. After arriving at the scene, police and paramedics took Suge Knight and Shakur to the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada. While in critical care on the afternoon of Friday, September 13, 1996, Shakur died of respiratory failure that led to cardiac arrest after the removal of his right lung. He was pronounced dead at 4.03 p.m. It's always been rumored that Suge, in a blind rage, had made up his mind that his nemesis Sean Combs, Bad Boy Records, and Smalls had something to do with the shooting of Tupac. It would be less than a year later that Suge would have his revenge. On March 9, 1997, at 12.30 a.m., Wallace left with his entourage traveling in the front passenger seat. At 12.45, Wallace's SUV stopped at a red light. A dark-colored 1994 Chevrolet Impala SS pulled up alongside Wallace's SUV. The driver of the Impala, a black male, rolled down his window, drew a 9mm blue steel pistol, and fired at the Suburban. Four bullets hit Wallace. Wallace's entourage rushed him to Cedars Medical Center, where doctors performed emergency surgery, but he was pronounced dead at 1.15 a.m. He was just 24 years old. From the Source Awards in 1995, only 24 months later, millions of records were sold, many arrests were made, and two of rap's brightest stars were dead. In the end, what can we really take from this? That all of the anger, jealousy, and hatred was for nothing. Deathbed confessions can prove someone right or prove them very, very wrong. And what we would find out later is that blind hatred for someone can actually blind you. I think Tupac and Suge were toxic for each other. From my research, they fed into each other's paranoia about Smalls, Combs, and Bad Boy. Although I don't think they were innocent, they too had shootings around them that involved violent behavior against death row. But sometimes, when bad meets evil, it becomes a devastating tornado ripping everything apart. We would find out later that a record exec hired a hitman to rob and shoot Tupac in that elevator in 1994. And Smalls was accidentally killed while the gunmen thought they were taking a hit on Sean Combs under Suge's orders. No one really won in the violent rivalry that was East Coast-West Coast in the 90s. Bad Boy would continue to pick up the pieces, and continue this day to sign major artists to their label. Though it's not the juggernaut it once was with Biggie Smalls. And Death Row? Well, in 1997, Suge Knight was convicted of parole violation and sentenced to nine years in prison, causing Interscope to drop their distribution deal with the label. Suge Knight's control over the label diminished. Most of the label's artists, including Snoop Dogg, were finally able to escape, 1998, leaving Death Row, which was basically all but a whimper. Death Row would have a big rap sheet that would make it very, very difficult, near impossible, to find distribution elsewhere. On July 7, 2006, the federal judge, Ellen Carroll, ordered a bankruptcy trust to take over Suge Knight's Death Row records, saying the record label had undergone a gross amount of mismanagement. In June 2008, Death Row Records was put up for auction in bankruptcy court. The winning bid went to a New York-based company, oddly enough, named Global Music Group, which confirmed it had purchased the firm in a statement to the Associated Press news agency. Global Music Group failed to secure funding, and the Death Row Records catalog eventually went to a company called Wide Awake Entertainment. It was reported that Snoop Dogg had bought Death Row Records, but what he's going to do from here and the purpose of buying it is unknown. 
To me, it has a legacy in the history of music, a beacon for rap, and it tells a story to the masses and to be accepted by music media and other artists finally as a great record label. Not everything is sad, though, and I want to end with a positive note on something good that did come from the 1995 Source Awards. It's a story often overlooked, but shook rap to its core at the time. The attendees at the Source Awards were so venomous By the time Best New Rap Artist was announced, anyone receiving awards not from New York was getting violently booed and disrespected. The actions of Bad Boy and Death Row had put the entire venue in a hostile state. The winners of the Best New Artist that year in 1995 was Outkast, an Atlanta-based rap group duo who had not hit their peak but were really rising fast. When announced, the two members of Outkast, Big Boy and Andre 3000, approached the stage to accept but were pelted with anger and hostility. After a few seconds, member Andre 3000 would make a statement louder than a lion's roar among the hostile air in the building. For a few uncomfortable minutes, Andre 3000 approaches the mic and says, But it's like this, though. I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? Them closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear, but it's like this, the South got something to say. That's all I got to say. The South got something to say. And they did. Outcasts would go on to be huge. And Southern rap, not the East or West Coast, was now on the map. With Outcasts came T.I., Scarface, Lil Wayne, Goody Mob, CeeLo Green, Ghetto Boys, Ludacris, Little John, Rick Ross, and that's just to name a few. As East and West battled for supremacy, Southern rap threw its chip in to work harder, to kick the doors in, and finally be accepted. Southern Rap would go on to carry the torch of rap in the mainstream for the next eight years when Outkast released their final album in 2003. And what happens to the major players after 1996 in this story? Well, Dr. Dre would go on to form Aftermath Records, a record label that would sign what some consider the greatest rapper of all time, and most certainly the highest selling rapper of all time in Eminem. He would also sign 50 Cent as well. All together... Aftermath Records has sold 60 million albums, way more than Death Row could ever imagine. Snoop Dogg went on to sign with No Limit Records, who had some up-and-down career moments in music. But all in all, Snoop Dogg is now a cultural icon. He's everywhere. Your parents know who Snoop Dogg is. My kids know who Snoop Dogg is. He's simply a pop culture icon that will live out his legacy, being one of the most entertaining rappers in all forms of entertainment. Sean Combs still runs Bad Boy, which is still in existence today. With several artists on his label, Bad Boy has sold close to 75 million albums. As it stands today, Sean Combs is very close to being a billionaire. And Suge Knight? Well, Suge Knight's in prison. He got sentenced to 28 years for running over a man on a movie set. We could speculate for the many reasons why Suge Knight would run somebody over to kill them, but let's just say it's probably related to some business dealings and maybe some gang connections. Either way, Suge Knight finally lost it in his jail for 28 years. It's been said before, live by the gun, die by the smoking pistol. But on February 13th, when you enjoy the Super Bowl halftime show, I don't want you to think about any of this. In fact, I'm putting it out kind of late so it won't be on your mind when you're watching the Super Bowl. But let's just remember how entertaining the 90s were 
and how incredible it was to have gangster rap in the mainstream, or rap at all in the mainstream. What an accomplishment. All these records sold. All this history made. Just based on a short period of time between two labels. And while we're at it, from the 95 Source Awards, if we consider what Southern Rap has been able to do, it's been quite a run for rap. What a great time to be alive. What an awesome time to see crazy things going on and being a part of it, buying those records, seeing the videos. So much was going on, it was, it was like a sensory overload. It's the best way I can put it. But now, these songs are considered oldies. Our music's considered oldies, which is kind of hard to come to grasp with. But all in all, it's the music we love. It was a soundtrack to our lives. And it was the music behind our parties. Listen, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with something else very, very soon. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, 21 Years. Don't forget to uh, be a part of our community. Share us. It's a big deal. We really do this through word of mouth. So please, please, please share us and continue to tell people about us so that we can continue to grow and these episodes can be heard. It's really an archive of our history and our youth era that we grew up in, which is so important. I wouldn't trade being in the 80s and 90s for anything. And as I always tell you guys, I record these episodes so that one day my sons can hear about my life through my own voice. And if you're listening, boys, remember, I love you. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful week. And be on the lookout for something new coming out from 21 Years Very Soon. Good night.